Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels. Welcome to episode 126 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Tammy Lebrecht all about mailing lists, and boy, is it an episode where you need a notebook. She is absolutely amazing at giving us ideas and tips and tricks, so I hope that you um, enjoy this episode. But first to last week's question, which was, what's the hardest thing you've done in your writing journey? Lovis said, as for the question of the week, I think the hardest thing I've done in my writing journey was shelving my book I finished last year that I hadn't been working on for years. Um, when I had a crisis and realised I'd written a problematic monster that couldn't be saved and I didn't want my name on it. I find writing really exposes uh, my unconscious biases and I have really been trying to educate myself better and be better about how my privilege reveals itself. That book needs a massive overhaul with more energy than I can muster right now. Uh, So I've moved on to bigger and better things with eyes open. I think that's so important and a lesson that so many of us um, should take note of. I don't think, what am I trying to say here? I think all of us, regardless of our diversity or lack of diversity, should always continue to work on our biases and our unconscious biases. I don't think this is something that we ever stop learning. I think we relearn lessons. I think we have to constantly educate ourselves. And I think as writers, that is so deeply important because we are trying to write people who aren't always the same as us. And therefore we should be respectful and we should, you know, ask questions with the right intentions and try to research and get as much uh, what am I saying? Realism? I don't know if that's like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think you know why I'm, or you, I think you all know what I'm trying to say. So yeah. S.W. Miller says, brilliant episode. Emma is a bloody legend. Hardest thing I've done on my writing journey is sending the self-edited draft of my first book to the editor. Having said that, it's also the best thing I ever did. So if you know it's ready and you're dragging your heels, get it sent. Christina Adams says, I have two things that were super hard. One, getting over my hatred of world building to start my fantasy series. I quit writing fantasy for a decade because I hated it so much. Two, rereading my own work when I was working on a spin-off that overlapped with my first couple of books. I hadn't planned my book, my first book in much depth, so I didn't have any notes to refer back to and I'd forgotten some key stuff. But having to read my own work felt like looking back at embarrassing school photos, only the pain lasts longer. Although once I got over that initial barrier, I didn't mind rereading it. I actually don't mind rereading my books. Um, I have had to reread Keepers a number of times uh, because I have forgotten the story or forgotten details that I've added in there. So yeah, like I, I, and it feels like coming home in a weird way. Like, of course I can see things that I would change or I would have done differently or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. I I don't mind it so much. Okay, this week's question is, because it is Valentine's Day this week, this week's question is, are you romantic? And you can ask that, ask it, you can answer that in terms of in your writing, in real life, I don't mind, answer it however you like. The book recommendation of the week this week is The Hating Game by Sally Thorne. This is a straight romance. It's a rivals to lovers, a work-placed 
romance, which is like one of my favorite uh, things. I love enemies to lovers, rivals to lovers. Um, and it's full of flirting and banter and obviously it's romance, so it has a HEA. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I, I uh, kind of had the feeling that I shouldn't love it. There were some things that I didn't enjoy about it. Um, I didn't particularly like the representation of competition. I actually feel like it was small C competitiveness rather than big C competition, but it's things like that that give big C strength competition a bad rap. So yeah, if you do read it, then um, just know I wasn't happy with the competitiveness in the, or, or the representation of the competitiveness. Felt a bit petty to me. Um, Anyway, I absolutely adored the flirting, the banter, the, oh, absolute, like, rap, like, I was enraptured, enraptured, is that the right word? I don't know, captured by the um, slow burn romance and, like, just the tease that the author gave us. It was so good. And I just couldn't put the book down. I wanted to know what happened. I wanted to, it was compulsively readable. So, yeah, I really recommend it. I can see why it was made into a movie. Okay, so that was the book recommendation. On to um, my own personal update. Well, you can still get my audiobook for 50% off. Uh, so 13 Steps to Evil, How to Craft Super Bad Villains is, the audiobook is on a 50% sale if you buy direct from me. So visit sashablack.co.uk um, and uh, the link is in the show notes. Go to the shop and use the code FAB50. So F-A-B-F-I-F-T-Y. What else? So this week has been, <laughs> well, it was meant to be a week where I got to do a shitload of work and like worked my ass off because my son was with my mum because it's half term. And um, so, yeah, I was meant to be able to get loads and loads of work done. But it the universe has conspired <laughs> against me this week. So I've actually got very little done and probably less than I would have got done on a normal working week, which isn't great. And I'm not very happy about it. Um, it's been a bit of a nightmare. We were supposed to have new internet installed, like this whizzy 910 meg download speeds that, you know, none of us are ever going to be able to consume that bandwidth. Um, However, we're on currently 60 meg download, which is just not sufficient. Like when I'm doing a group Zoom call, it just eats all of the bandwidth and nobody else can really do anything else in the house. However, um, they came to install it and the connection boxes are not working uh, in the, what's it called, in down the road. So um, I'm now left with no internet, which is not helpful because I've got, like I had four meetings yesterday that I was supposed to be able to record. So I had to cancel all of those. And then it's just been like, family interruptions, friend interruptions. It's been like, like responsibilities or just things getting in the way, popping up here, there and everywhere. Um, and so I've just got fuck all done and I'm really pissed off about it. <laughs> my achiever is not a happy girl this week. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my goal this week was to get all of the launch stuff done for all three launches and outsourced um, to the amazing, ever amazing backer. And I'm just not there. Like I've just not managed to get all of it done. So you know, I'm meant to be going back to wording next week. I'm supposed to be working on um, a fiction project, The Sense of Death, and non-fiction project, which um, I don't want to talk about yet. And um, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. I need to write two presentations as well. And, you know, it's Thursday. So, yeah, I'm a little bit grumpy. I know I don't sound grumpy, but I feel grumpy. So, uh, yeah, hopefully 
by the end of next week I will be caught up uh and yeah because the end of next week what is next week yeah there's only two more weeks until my birthday so that's fun um all right so that's probably enough from me I think because this week I haven't got anything wildly interesting to tell you I have just been like working on admin-y launch stuff shit like that trying to keep my absolute monstrous inbox down so yes I think I will leave it there all right, Rebel of the Week this week is Jessa Forrest. Jessa says, in my year, in my senior year of college, I got roped into the poetry theory class by one of my English major roommates. He had us read predominantly old white, ooh, male poets out of an anthology compiled by old white males. Whenever we discussed a female poet in class, he would not go um, as in-depth with work as his personal favourites. The lectures were very boring as a result. One day we looked at one of Sylvia Plath's poems and he made a very rude comment about mental health. Oh, oh, this is just getting worse. I got fed up and we got into an argument in front of the entire class, which was extremely embarrassing. No, it was amazing. Good for you for standing up um, for mental health. Unfortunately, he grabbed the last word with a dig at me along the lines of, I didn't know what I was talking about because I wasn't a real poet. (gasps) The next week... Another college in the area, area had a literary festival. Ah, and they won first place in a I got so excited I couldn't even talk. I won first place in a, in a poetry prize and he had to eat his words. Fuck yes, he did. Ah, oh, I love, love, love this story. Amazing. Like, go you, congratulations on winning and showing him he's a twat. so yeah oh I love this story I love it I love it I love it okay if you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your story it can be any kind of rebellion big small or something in between you can email your story to becca on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com new patrons this week but a enormous thank you to all of my existing patrons I love you guys I appreciate you guys I am super grateful to all of you guys um I yeah like honestly I cannot explain to you how grateful I am so thank you for all of this the support that you are giving both me and the show if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black this episode is sponsored by Kobo writing life so I'm going to play a short word from the sponsor and then we're going to get on with the episode Hey Rebels, we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast, and easy self-publishing platform. Kobo Writing Life was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. One of the ways we're doing that is by giving you the chance to reach subscription readers by opting your titles into Kobo Plus. Kobo Plus is our subscription program, which offers thousands of titles in an all-you-can-read catalog to readers in select countries. It's currently available in the Netherlands, Belgium, Portugal, and Canada with plans to expand. Stay tuned for that. Authors can opt into all territories or pick and choose as they please. It's really important to us that authors retain complete control over their work, which is why we will never ever ask you to be exclusive. You can opt your books in on a per title basis and continue selling them on all other retailers. Global Plus helps get your books in front of a new audience of subscription readers who are a different audience than our typical a la carte readers and allows you to earn money on top of your a la carte sales. Authors get paid for every minute spent reading, including rereads. So opt your books in now and reach even more Kobo readers. 
If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com slash writing life. Now back to Sasha. Happy writing. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I am super excited because I have spent a very long time wanting this particular guest on my show. So it is giving me great pleasure to welcome Tammy Lebrec. Tammy lives in central Maine with three very spoiled cats, two neurotic dogs, and dozens of fictional characters that keep her awake at night. She writes under a few pen names across several genres, including urban fantasy, thriller, and lit RPG. Under her own pen name, you can find her writing romance novels that no one reads or teaching at newsletterninja.net. Hello. <laughs> you could not have that in your bio. <laughs> you can check my ranks. It's <laughs> oh, um, It's fine. It's genuinely fine. I have no problem with it. I, I, I mean, I think what is life unless unless we are able to take the piss out of ourselves, really? hundred percent. That is that if you can't and if you can't take the piss out of yourself in your own bio, then someone else is just going to do it for you, frankly. So. Exactly. I, exactly. I try to mock myself a little bit in my bio, too. So, um well, welcome. I uh, yeah, I, I meant every word that I said. As I said to you off air, I've read your book twice now. Your newsletter, Ninja. Once when it first came out. I don't even know how many years it's been out now. It's been out a while, hasn't it? Two thousand eighteen, August of two thousand eighteen. I wasn't even full time then. Oh my god, time is a lie. Wow. Um. Yeah. So welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Before we dive into newsletters and reader magnets and automation and all that good stuff, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and uh, like your journey, like how you got to where you are today? Yes. So um, I've always written. I've kind of always been a writer. If if uh, if you can be such a thing when you're as young as I was, probably 13, 14 years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um I was first published back in the 90s, back in the very early 90s. Um, I had a short story traditionally published by uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley. And then I promptly didn't like follow up on that or submit more stories or, you know, anything crazy like that. So um, <laughs> just kind of languished and wrote stuff. Um, and uh I guess you could say I started this whole situation um, in the fall of 2014. I was fired from my office job, my dreadful office job. Um, one of those deals where you get fired and you're like, oh, I don't know how I'll pay the rent or have health insurance, but I'm so happy I don't have to go to this job anymore. <laughs> it was very sad. Um, but I had been paying attention to indie publishing for probably about eight months before that, listening to podcasts and kind of watching what other people were doing and hanging out on the, I think it was K boards at the time is where everybody was. Um, and so I thought, well, it, why not like give this a whirl? Like I was thinking about doing it part-time in the evenings when I was, you know, not at my work, but I no longer have a work. So maybe I'll just try this. And my, um, my, my former in-laws who I just always call my in-laws, they're the loveliest people in the world. Um, they agreed to pay our rent for six months. And wow. So, yes. It's about one of the kindest and most generous things anyone's ever done for me. So um, they did that. And by the end of that six months, I was self-supporting, if, you know, somewhat rickety. And um, that's it. Haven't looked back since. I uh, paid them amazing. back. It was, it was a loan, not a, like a gift. I paid them back. And somehow we're 
staring down 2022 and I'm not homeless yet. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm figuring it out. Uh, it's a work in progress. <laughs> no, I love that. I, I love that everybody has a different journey and uh, I definitely uh, sympathize with the, with the, so I was in a corporate job that I absolutely hated and like basically had a nervous breakdown in the middle of winter and was crying in, in the middle of a tree whilst it was raining in December. Um, but I try not to think about those days too much anymore. They're really over. Far on. They are over. <laughs> I would pull into the parking lot of that job and I would, I went a little bit early every day so that I could have five minutes. Cause I knew when I pulled into the parking lot, I would cry. Yeah. Um, so I'd have a little cry and then I'd tidy myself up and go in and do my terrible office job. I hated yeah. it. Yeah. So I, there was definitely something about being in that amount of pain that, and I'm so like now for listeners, everybody, it's time to drink because I mentioned strengths in like every fucking episode. But <laughs> Not a cult. <laughs> yeah, totally a cult. Uh, no. So uh, it, with, with competition, there is like a, a, a thread where you like pain, not like pain, but like pain is generative for you. And that was definitely like being in that much pain is one of the things that drove me to work so hard to leave, I think. But oh, interesting. yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't have that. They had to fire me. <laughs> I literally had to be fired, which I probably deserved. Well, um, I, I did go under threat of redundancy no less than four times. And I survived all fucking four times. Still don't know how I managed to do that. I am one lucky SOB, that is for sure. Um, but anyway, anyway, we are here to talk about newsletters. Um, newsletters. Yeah. And I have to say, it still surprises me that some authors just don't really know about newsletters or like don't, or they know, but they haven't set one up yet. So for those listeners who are either new to this game and therefore just haven't learned about it yet, or for those listeners who are not so new, but haven't been persuaded to jump into the pool of mailing lists, can you first explain like what they are and why they are so essential? Okay, so your mailing list, of course, is a list of names that you've collected, a list of email addresses, actually, that you've collected um, that are people, these are people who are interested in what it is that you're doing in the case of indie authors, our fiction, usually. Um, so you collect their names, uh, their email addresses. I've got to stop saying their names as though that's going to help you. Their email addresses and you email them, um, well, depending on who you are, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways. You've got your people who only email for new releases, which, as you know, I don't recommend. Um, some people send, you know, chatty, fun catch-up emails. Some people do a lot of recommending other books or whatever. But you keep in touch with these people via your own newsletter, your own mailing list software. Um, and the main reason that you need to do that is because all of those other connections that you're making with them don't really belong to you. And so um, if you're talking to people on Facebook or Instagram, or you've got, you know, 10 million followers on TikTok or whatever, um, all of those things are great. And I actually, you know, I tell my authors, be, be on whatever platforms you're comfortable on. Um, but those can be taken away from you at any yeah. time. Right. Um, so we've had obviously Facebook outages, but those are a day. Nobody's going to like, you know, lose their whole career in a day. Although but, the stock price just crashed on Facebook, didn't it? And that's caused yeah. chaos. So it happened to a more deserving bunch of whatever, <laughs> but, but it does affect us. So that's, yeah. Bad. yeah. Um, yeah. But um, we have certainly heard a bunch of horror stories about authors who, for example, their ad, like, um, accounts just get shut down and there's really not a lot of recourse for that. Suddenly you can't run ads or their entire profile will get shut down. Right. Um, I'm probably going to get shut down <laughs> if 
Petra is shouting at people about politics all the time. I'm having to like not even go on Facebook very much because I keep getting banned. So like if I lose my Facebook platform, which I would deserve because I am always breaking the terms and services, <laughs> um, then what would I do? Nothing. I'd be fine because I would just I'd have my newsletter and my people are pretty much all on my newsletter. I have a Facebook group, but the numbers are pretty much the same as my newsletter. And I think the overlap is pretty close to entire. I think it's almost just two, you know, overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. Um, so that's why you want to do that, because you just you want to have a platform that belongs to you. Uh, some people substitute blogging. Um, and there have actually been just a couple of people who've come to me over the years for like help with newsletters. And then it was really clear that what they just really wanted was permission to keep blogging, keep blogging. That's fine. <laughs> if that's your, if that's your thing, but you just have to be somewhere where people are able to get to you and you're not just going to have like it all yanked away from you. If you're hosting for your blog one away tomorrow, you would just set your blog up somewhere else. You know what I mean? Um, so as long as you own the land that you're cultivating your readers on, that's, that's what I want to see people doing. The thing about a newsletter is that you can have a kind of exclusivity that you can't have, even if you're like blogging on your own platform. So there's not really any, um, there's not really any particular reason that somebody needs to say sign up for your newsletter. If you're doing all of your interacting with them in a public place like a blog, they'll just say, oh, well, I'll just check the blog when I want to. And then that doesn't give you the opportunity to do things like send them targeted emails that, you know, specifically, uh, you know, dovetail with their interests. If they like one subgenre, you write better. Or if you know that they're audio listeners and you want to make sure to target them when audio comes out, these aren't things you can do if people are just visiting you on the internet. You want them on the newsletter so that you have access to information about what they do with the newsletters that they get. And depending on your platform, sometimes you can have a great deal more information as well, what, where they're going, what they've purchased, what pages they've been on on your website. Um, like I said, you can tag them if they're audio people, which is always fun. Um, so yeah, basically you just, you don't want to be uh, what I call digital sharecropping. Don't be farming on somebody else's digital land. Bad idea. Okay. And the other aspect of um, mailing lists, which everybody talks about is reader magnets. Mm -hmm. So can you just explain what a reader magnet is and why we need one and maybe um, give a mention to something that's coming out very soon? Mm -hmm. I can, because yes. <laughs> as we record this, I yes. have out tomorrow. Um, so reader magnets, totally my thing this past like eight to 10 months, uh, just completely my jam. Um, I, so at its, at its most basic, a reader magnet is a bribe, right? Um, how I described it in the book is, uh, it's a lost leader, like the, like the cheap ground beef at the grocery store, your reader magnets, are just a bunch of cheap hamburger. Isn't that great? So <laughs> what you do with a loss leader, which is obviously a tactic that's used, you know, across every kind of commerce that you can imagine, e-commerce and regular commerce, is you dangle something that is loss leader, meaning that it, you know, loses money at the price point, which in this case is free. You dangle a loss leader in front of somebody, which gets them in the door, the grocery store door, or in your case, your digital door, and gives you a chance to market things to them that are not free. So that's what the reader magnet is. It's just bait. It's a bribe. Come join my list, trade your email address. And now you have access to this person's inbox, which is great access to have because people, despite 
many warnings about how email is dead. It is not. People are still checking their email every day. The vast majority of people check their email every day or at least every two days. Most people check their emails in bed, on their phone, on the toilet. Sorry to say. Um, people just are people are in their email all the time. Um, not to say they're not on social media all the time, but you're not going to get seen there. You've got a better chance in the inbox. So the reader magnet gets them on that list where you then have some access to them. The problem is that a lot of people are either, I, I see two issues. The first is that a lot of people don't want to give away anything for free because they've become sort of frightened that if you bribe people onto your list with something free, what you'll get is just people who only want free things. Um, and the second problem that I see is people giving away kind of the wrong thing as a reader magnet, or at least something that could be a lot more effective. So that's where, that's, that's where writing the book came in. I was like, okay, people need to understand a little bit of this stuff I've figured out about reader magnets. Yeah. It sounds really arrogant when I say it that way. No, not at all. <laughs> you impart some wisdom into these people about my reader magnet genius. Um, oh, really. oh, sorry. It is what it is. Um, I do, um, I do a lot of mailing list management, like for, um, other authors. And of course for my own pen names, and I have a couple of friends that I help publish, which basically means I often end up kind of just doing the technical stuff that they don't want to deal with. And I help my daughter to publish. So I've got a lot of authors kind of in the, in the pool here. Um, so I have a chance to run a lot of different kinds of experiments and see what things work and what things don't work. And, um, I have some really strong ideas about reader magnets, it turns out. So that I, I'm going to jump around. I know I, I've sort of, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to jump around because I think this is a great question and something that I have definitely possibly learned the hard way. So for, uh, I think there are lots and lots of different types of reader magnets that you can use and um, some only work in some circumstances. So for example, I have uh, a series where, there's two month gap between book one and book two. So I wrote some of the stuff that happens between book one and book two, which is great for anyone who has finished book one, right? Not so good at getting anybody who hasn't read book one uh, onto the list. So can you maybe talk about some of the reader magnets that are good, some of the uh, reader magnets that are less good, different types, like what are, what is the ideal? So I divide uh, reader magnets into two categories, broadly speaking. Reader magnets for people who know you, your existing readers is what I call them in the book. It gets very repetitive. So sorry to everyone who's got the book. Um, and then readers, uh, reader magnets for people who don't know you for prospective readers. So you got your, I think I actually call them potential readers. You got your existing readers and your potential readers. Um, something like your reader magnet that comes in between those two books and works for existing readers. It's not even just that it works for them, but that it works exceptionally well for them because it ties into something that they've already read and enjoyed. That kind of reader magnet is actually a, a really, really good idea. If you don't mind doing more than one kind of reader magnet, doing some that are good for people who know you and doing some for people who don't is great. If you don't really have time to do more than one reader magnet, which a lot of people really don't, although my romance people, shout out to my romance people who are just writing an epilogue for every single book. <laughs> like They're just like, whatever, I just build it in. Um, if you don't have time, though, to do more than one reader magnet, you probably want to pick what I call a convertible cookie because I always have to make up dumb names for stuff. Um, 
And that is something that works for both of those scenarios. Um, that it will, it will work. It will really entice. It's not even just that like, it's okay for them, but it will really entice somebody who's read your book in the way that that between novels content does with the reader magnet that you have now. But it will also, if somebody picks it up and reads it, who has not read your work, which of course means it needs to stand alone, it will really entice them to read through to something else in your catalog. And that can be tricky to engineer, but if you can pull it off and you can sort of haha bake that in from the very like beginning of the process if you can make that be a part of the book writing process that you're thinking about how you're going to reader magnet that situation so that it's kind of a no-brainer for both types of reader then it's really powerful and you don't have to make a bunch of them which is nice because we got books to write as well so i royally cocked up um my uh, reader magnets situation in in such spectacular fashion that I think I just have to confess what happened. Um, so I, oh. I I had the cover designed and everything, in, intended it for it to be a prequel from like the love interest um, point of view. And when I started writing, that is just not what happened. So in the last book, which I finished today, <laughs> yay! Um, I the, the love interest is, is essentially separated for a period of time and writes in a journal during the last book. And so what I've done is I've written that journal, and that is what was going to be the pre, going to be like a kind of prequel, like a, a what's what did you call it? Not a um, the potential reader, and they can't use it because it comes timeline wise at the end of the book. So I fucked it again. So. <laughs> I am like the queen of messing up all reader magnets. So now I'm just chucking it up and it's just going to be like an extra novella. Think about how like compelling that will be though for somebody who's read that book, right? Because they're complete Easter egg. Yeah. And that character is writing this journal the whole time. And then at the end of the book, you go, Hey, you want to see so-and-so's journal? And they're like, yeah, I do. Yeah. So totally. You just, whatever you offer them, you want them to go. Yeah. That's how you know that like you nailed it. Yeah, so you, well, you have one side of it. There's still time to do the others. There's still time. Uh, <laughs> so I'm trying again. So I am now like I'm moving into a new genre. Well, it's like it's a sort of deviation of the genre. And um, I am determined to do the reader magnet first before I even write anything else. Because I swear to God, if I get it wrong again, I'm going to lose my shit. Um. <laughs> that is a really good way to do it. If you can write your reader magnet first, because then the thing is that you can go ahead and you can seed in as you go yes. along all of those little things that make that a no brainer when they get to the end of the book and they, and they are like, you ask them, do you want this thing? And they go, yeah, exactly. So third, third time lucky. So um, you talked about sort of like the strategy for it. What are some examples, I guess, a prequel. So something that happens before, like what, what other kind of things can people write about? Oh, well, people can, you can do all kinds of things. Um, you can do, let me see. I'm going to, no one has to go buy the book because I'm just going to list them all for you. Um, that's just, a couple, just, just, just a couple. Oh, is totally <laughs> buy the book because there's a whole strategy situation in there. But in terms of just straight up ideas, prologues are great, right? So if you write epic fantasy and you were going to do this whole like, you know, the history of the kingdom of whatever. No, throw that out. Nobody reads prologues anyway. That's stupid. 
make it a reader magnet. Here's this history of the land and people can pick it up and learn this backstory after they have read your amazing book, right? Um, your prologue that's like 2000 years of the history of your kingdom of whatever probably doesn't work for prospective readers because they don't, they're like, I don't care about that kingdom. But once they've finished, those are like, those are legends now. Those are things they'd be interested in. Um, prequels, of course, are great. They work especially well in speculative fiction, things like, um, post-apocalyptic science fiction, uh, uh, future earth fantasy, um, zombie, like anything where like the world changed a ton. Prequels are awesome because then you can go back to the event itself because in your post-apoc, you probably didn't actually like have a scene of them going through the apocalypse. You're in a place where, I mean, it's called post-apocalyptic. You're, you're past that. So if you can go back and you can actually sort of be like, and here's would you like to read the story of the week that the, you know, after the uh, electromagnetic pulse that threw everyone into the stone age and people are like, yeah, I would. So there you go. Um, they also work with romance in kind of a funny way. I'm seeing people doing like parent prequels. So you've got like your three or four brothers or your three sisters or whatever, um, like a family kind of romance situation. That sounded gross. What I mean, of course, is each brother gets his own book. Oh, Lord. And, and I'm guessing like first chance as well. So if you have like a second chance yeah. romance, you could have like the first chance of that romance. And if you're doing a second chance romance, people are actually pretty interested in what happened that first time around. Um, the only the only caveat, of course, is that if it was not interesting. <laughs> Yeah. people just broke up for dumb reasons. Do you know what I mean? And like, that's not fun to write, but you can, for example, write the, when they first like fell in love, that's kind of cool. Um, maybe just avoid the sad part, but I do see people do um, like parent prequels. Like this is how their parents fell in love, which feels weird. Cause then they're going to like have babies and then the babies grow up and their romance is about them. But Nora Roberts did it. And I figure if Nora Roberts did it, we're fine. Yeah. Um, like that's that's how I go. Prequels are also insanely good, of course, for villain backstory. Right. So what I always say is Star Wars got three movies out of that. Um, if you've got somebody in the story that they love to hate or that they just hate, frankly, and you want to go back and like sort of tell their story, you can either do it in that kind of, you know, anti-hero, like it actually makes you kind of root for them way. Or you can just straight up make them evil um my friend jamie davis who writes urban fantasy one of his series has a villain prequel and it just follows him from when he's actually quite a small child until that kind of moment when he just chooses evil and that's it he's just lost it's a pretty grim ending um he's you're certainly not rooting for him but it's also fascinating to know what it was that made him so he's not just this kind of caricature in the mm -hmm. book just being evil for evil's sake um and of course he doesn't spend a lot of time explaining to her why he's evil so this is a good chance to give somebody a a, a glimpse um what you did the journaling any of that kind of like extraneous stuff journals um uh, letters that people write, text messages, uh, phone calls, just little extraneous bits of stuff that maybe didn't quite make it into the book. A lot of people will collect those or even just do a little tiny, like little tiny exchange of some kind. Um, point of view shifts are really popular, mostly I think in like romance and some of the romance adjacent stuff, like current indie UF is kind of almost paranormal romance -y most of the time. Um, people seem to like that. A scene that's in the book but then you're like, would you like to read this scene from so-and-so's point of view? And it's the other main character. People are really interested in that because they want to be in both heads. Um, trying to think what else. Epilogues, of course, for romance in particular. I mean, like you're not going to 
I think what I said in the book is like, you're not going to do an epilogue for an epic fantasy because like a farm boy gets crowned king and then I'm sure he's a very good king and who wants to read about that? Like that's a sort of a natural ending, right? Um, But with the romance, you know, they, whatever, there's a proposal and the epilogue can be marriage or they get married and the epilogue is finding out they're expecting a baby. Frankly, romance readers will follow them to the nursing home where they die side by side holding hands. (laughs) Romance readers do not like to let go of their characters. So (laughs) you can get a a whole lot of epilogue action out of uh, romance people. And, um, you know, stories that kind of take place alongside, if you happen to notice, like there's some other characters in the story that are doing stuff. And then you're like, do you want to hear about their whatever? Sure. I want to do that. Um, spinoffs, of course, if somebody's real popular in a series and you're, you know, you've wrapped it up, but let's grab her and start a new, start a new series from her, which gives you linked series, gives you that benefit of, of, um, being able to maybe like spin off an actual like published story about her and do some like sell through magic. But even if not, anytime you can take a, like a really popular character and build something around them, that's always really good. Um, I'm trying to think there's a, there's a market for some like book adjacent stuff, like maps, family trees, uh, dossiers, case files, glossy magazines. I had one um, student in my advanced class last year, Ariella Zoel, she writes um, mail mail um, romance fiction. And uh, she does for every book what she calls a visual guide. And she sends a link to her mailing list. And it's just this exhaustive catalog of all the stuff that was in the book, the places that they stay, like the hotels, the restaurants they go to, recipes for the food they eat, the clothes they're wearing in a certain scene. Um, Just this like beautiful like guide to how everything looked and where she got all of the ideas that she had, Um, which, of course, is very super fan building. You know what I mean? Like who are interested in that are like, they are super fans, but, um, I get crossovers, Easter eggs. I could do this all day. I'm not joking. Yeah. <laughs> so many by the book, but um, my, favorite by the book. Right now, my favorite right now are, um, what I call side stories or side quests. I mean, if you're writing in like fantasy, it's literally a side quest, right? Um, where it's something that takes place during the course of the novel and you know about it, but you don't see it. Um, it can't obviously be something important or something that really advances the plot. But um, if somebody really truly just goes off on sort of a side quest and comes back and is like, we're just not going to talk about that. At the end of the book, I do a I do a case study of a very specific one um, and break it all the way down. But at the end of the book, when you say you want to find out what happened when, you know, so and so went off and, and people go, well, yeah, I do. And if it's done properly, it will also work for people who don't know you yet because it's a standalone story that took place outside the scope of what's going on in your novel. They don't need to know the world of your novel if you design it right. Yeah, so close because that is literally what happens with... (laughs) I'm so so close but so far Sasha yeah like literally there are so many references in the book to him like writing in this journal and it's so tied into the story as well because it's about like memories and that's his like special ability um and then at the end of the book he literally gives it to the protagonist so yeah I will literally be able to say if you want to find out what happened like there you go spoiler alert everyone Um, readers are going to love that (laughs) 
they're going to be created. That's like catnip to somebody, to somebody who liked that book. That's a very good reader magnet just because it's not the reader magnet you meant to write. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not a good reader magnet. Yeah. Well, maybe I shouldn't publish it. Maybe I should just, oh, I don't know. Cause I was just going to publish it. Cause I was like, this is, this is not like, what is that? Like, anyway, I, I don't know. I, clearly I need your book. And if it could just be tomorrow so I could like get my pre-order, that would be fabulous. Probably, um, are you, you're across the ocean, right? It'd probably drop in like three hours. Maybe. I know, right? I'm very excited by this. <laughs> um, okay. Version, tell me. <laughs> I will. I'll let you know. Um, I'm sure it's the right one. Okay. Right. One of my patrons says, uh, Emma asks, if you are a brand new author, where the hell do you start? That's a really good question. Um, it, fortunately, it's easier than it used to be because in the olden days, it was just like, what do you even do? Um, if I were new, if I were starting today and I had nothing, I would probably write a reader magnet before I wrote anything else. Like I'm coming onto the scene. I haven't written a single word of my actual books, but I'd have them all planned out because that's number one ideation, um, not a cult. Uh, I would have it all planned out, but I would write my reader magnet first because if you write a reader magnet and then you head over to book funnel or story origins or prolific works or wherever it is that you're doing your cross promotions with reader magnets, I always recommend book funnel. It was first. It's just what I, I just use book funnel. Um, but if you head over to one of those places and you can get yourself into some cross promotions, now you're obviously not going to get into cross promotions with like, I don't know, Jamie Albright, right? Because you're nobody, sorry, you're wonderful, but in this world, you're nobody. Um, but you can get into a cross promotion with some other people who aren't really setting the world on fire right now either. And then you pick up a few and they pick up a few subscribers and then you move on to a slightly, you know, better or bigger, promotion that maybe you can grab a few more subscribers. I would rather launch to 30 or 50 people who downloaded my reader magnet than to nobody at all. Mm -hmm. um, not that you're going to you know, make a gazillion dollars, but first of all, who writes to not be read? That part sucks. Um, and second, it'll just, you know, tickle the algorithms a little bit. If you're a new author and you sell a few books, Amazon will go, Oh, look at that. Selling a few books. And that's always good. That's always a positive. So if it were me and I were starting out, I would write a reader magnet, something short, 10 to 12,000 words. People are always telling me how they can't possibly write insert genre here in 12,000 words. Yes, you can. <laughs> the short story is a time honored like form. You can write uh, whatever your genre is. You can write it in 12,000 words. Uh, just start, you know, chucking out the parts that aren't important. If you got a cozy mystery, have one red herring instead of three. I don't know. Like you just, you just start chucking stuff out. Um, keep the signposts and call it good. Um, or do kind of a slice of life or a second chance romance is a really easy way to write a much shorter um, story because you don't have to tell the part about how they meet and fall in love. That part's a given. Um, so there's always ways that you can do that. So I would go ahead and I would write something short, 10, 12,000 words, get myself into a cross promotion, start building up um, a mailing list. The best way generally for most authors just to go over to mailer light specifically. Um, that's, I mean, that's what I recommend for just about anybody because it's the, it's free at first and it's the best kind of intersection of um, like cost and robustness, I guess. Is that even a word? Robustitude. Um, so just head over to mailer light, start up a mailing list and start moving some people onto it while you are finishing up your first book, getting the cover made, getting the edit done, whatever. And then you launch to your little tiny list. And then the people that 
see your book because you elevated it a little bit by launching to not just crickets, they at the end of the book, get an invitation to join the list and read that reader magnet, which hopefully you've built into the series in such a way that your existing readers will want it as well. And they sign up and then, you know, it just becomes a a cycle from there. It's a, it's a, it's just always a series of steps. Every graph we have as indie authors is just a series of steps going ever higher if we're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other common question that I see asked a lot is like, mm, what do I write? <laughs> what kind of stuff do I talk about? Um, but because I, I before we uh, talked, I wanted to think about why people ask this. And I think the reason that people ask is because they struggle to understand what value means. And we're often told to provide value in our newsletters. You must provide value. You have to be sending value. So I, I think this is a part A and a part B question. So like, what does value mean in terms of sending an email? And how can writers get a better like strategy or create a good strategy for sending for the type of content that they're going to send? So for the first question, what does value mean? I think that that language, which I used in the original newsletter Ninja, for sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a chapter called Delivering Value. <laughs> I, like, I genuinely think there is. Um, I'd have to look, but I'm pretty sure. Um, that language, though, we've kind of borrowed from the world of Internet marketing. Um, and one of the one of the uh, things that has happened to me in my journey of the last eight months or so um, is that I went out there into kind of the internet marketing swamp deep. It's swampy out there. <laughs> I have to tell you, it is swampy out there. Um, and I really tried to get a sense of like, what is it that they're talking about out there and why don't those things work for us and how can they be transmuted? And that is actually kind of how I'm defining my purpose these days is that my job is to go out there and see those concepts, which are prevalent because they work, but they don't quite work for us because our whole thing is different. We're not selling widgets or courses or frankly, hope, right? We're, we're selling like $5 eBooks um, to people who are excited to receive them if we can just you know figure out how to build that fan base. So I feel like when it comes to delivering value, we need to think, I think we need to think in terms of what is our existing value to our subscribers? Um, because if you think about what is it that that I'm doing that they like, that they signed up for my newsletter or that they stay on the newsletter, that if you get replies, that I get replies from them, that sort of thing. Those things are generally not delivering any kind of like tangible value. I mean, you might recommend a book that's free because you saw it in BookBub or whatever, which is totally fine. Send them to a cross promotion with a bunch of reader magnets. And that's, you know, some free stuff and that's value, I guess. But I think in all honesty, the value proposition for somebody who joins a newsletter for something that they're a fan of is very different than if they're joining something because they want information or whatever it is that they get from internet marketers. I think they just want you to be yourself and to like share things about yourself and your books and your book journey and just all of the stuff that surrounds the thing that they liked that made them sign up, which is your books. Um, 
Training. I, I am laughing over here because, yeah, because oh, I feel like this is the lesson I literally just learned by rereading oh. your book. So oh. like I over over I used to be relatively good at sending emails and then the pandemic happened and my son was at home for eight months and I just like basically shit the bed because Uh, there was only so much I could do. And so, you know, that was not one of the things that I could do. And then I got myself in a spiral because I was like, wow, now I haven't sent an email for three months or whatever. And, you know, anyway, so I was like, no, look, you know what? I can, I can make this easier. So this year I kind of, and also like I was sending these monstrous emails, like crammed full of like tips and links and advice. And I was just like, the fuck are you doing this? Because I'd made it a chore, right? So- (laughs) Yes. Like I've made it a chore and as if I had to like over deliver everything and, and it be the most useful thing in the world. And of course, then I was avoiding it because like it was a monstrous task to do. So I came to it in January and I was like, you know what? I am just going to send a really voicey email. So I my nonfiction uh, like craft books are sweary. I tell dick jokes. I have sarcasm in there and I try to make learning craft really fun. And I was like. I don't really write emails like that. So I decided, I don't, don't like that. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make that face, but like. But I'm making the face internally, trust me. So anyway, I wrote this email like uh, last week and I'm now getting my VA to like shout at me to send the emails every week. So anyway, I handed it off. She scheduled it and it was like, it, it was the most voicey email I've ever written. And I bet you can't guess what happened. <laughs> I bet you get a ton of replies. Ton of replies! <laughs> Imagine that. I know, right? This is It's really hard for, I think most of us, I certainly know a few exceptions in the indie author world and I'm not naming names, but it is hard for most of us to imagine ourselves as something that people are, someone that people are like, a fan of that's kind of weird, right? Um, it has taken me a really long time to step into the fact that like people get my emails and they enjoy them and they want to reply and talk to me because they find me entertaining. The idea that anyone finds me entertaining is so bizarre to me, but Hey, whatever. There's no accounting for taste. I personally am, I think due to my, my ADD and also I have these kind of hyper focusy kind of strengths. Um, I am a super fan of things. I, I learn about a thing. And then first of all, I need to know everything about the thing. So like, just Fabergé eggs one weekend last year, like somehow I didn't understand what a Fabergé egg was. I thought it was just like a fancy like egg. And then I just it caught my attention. And after three days, I knew everything, everything about Fabergé eggs, um, Mount Everest, Doctor Who. Like I just, I dig deep and I learn absolutely everything. And I think because I have that kind of fan mindset that it is actually really easy for me to, to tell people, no, this is what your fans want. And they go fans. I'm like, listen, you, you have fans. I don't know what to tell you. Did you write books? Cause you thought no one would read them. Um, so start talking the way that you talked in the thing that made them become your fans, i.e. your books. And they will respond to that tremendously, tremendously well. Um, 
my list is like that. My list is super responsive when I am extremely honest and very much myself. I can be super vulnerable with my list, which is always so nice. Shout out to all you nice people because they're always sweet if I'm on the struggle bus and I tell them um, and they get real excited for me if I've had some kind of like, you know, success or some kind of, you know, victory of some sort Um, because I just talk to them the way I it sounds the same way my books do, I imagine. And so you sent an email that sounded like your books. And what do you know? That's what they're there for. Yep. And and the funny thing is, I love writing my books the way that I write them because I just have so much fucking fun. Like I when I write my I nonfiction. And guess what? It made writing the email fun. Surprising no one. <laughs> I read one of your books, but I can't remember which one. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I literally can't remember. It wasn't from the beginning, even like it was right out of the middle or something, which was weird. Um, and I don't remember what Amazon recommended it to me, I guess. I'll tell you after when I, I'll look it up <laughs> in my Kindle library. Um, and I loved your, like, I love your voice. That's amazing. I didn't join your newsletter because I don't really join newsletters. Because um, God forbid, like, can you imagine? <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I'm not on a huge number of uh, uh, mailing lists anymore. I used to be on loads and I just had to unsubscribe. Because otherwise what happens is like, I put them in a folder and then I don't read them. So I'm like, oh, well, yeah. I'm not going to read I'm going to put those it. in there and I'm going to read them. What, when am I going to read them? When there's 300 of them? No, I'm not. If I'm not going to read it today, exactly. certainly not going to read three of them tomorrow. But well, I will be the first person to pre-order and to buy and to read like the people that I love. Like, yes. like um, I'm one of those people that will read everything that someone has written. Like I am slowly making my way through a few people's like just everything because I am, I am a very definitely a whale reader. Yes. Um, I'm a, and I'm a completist. I get I I get very upset if I can't have it's it's one of my number six inputs. So I need I need all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope Becca's listening. I know. Um, to our I know. Clifton Strengths chat. Oh, everyone drink. <laughs> I think the same thing is true in fiction, but the problem is that most people say you write fiction about I don't know you write like Tolkien esque you know epic fantasy. And then you're like, well, I can't make that. So my newsletter isn't that, but your, your voice is that like, you're still yourself and you're still the person who wrote those storylines that they enjoyed enough. So the things that you find interesting in the actual world that we have, chances are good that you'll be able to make them interesting for them as well. Um, I love to have fiction people um, talk about the process of their books. That's when they come out of their shells too. All you fiction writers, that's when you kind of forget to be like guarded about how you're talking. If you really get people talking about their books, why they write them, the books they loved that made them become writers, you know, that kind of thing. They go gangbusters on a newsletter and then they get a bunch of replies. Okay. So one of the questions that I always ask when we have an expert on is what are some of the common mistakes that people make like in that uh, area so what are some of the mistakes that you see authors making with newsletters and all reader magnets the number one mistake i see people making with newsletters is only sending a newsletter when they have a new release that actually is one that really kills me there are 
people who will sign up for your newsletter because that's all they want is a new release notification. So I'm certainly not denying the existence of those people. And let me be the first to say that if you're making six figures and that's how you do it, keep on keeping on. You do you. I do not. Lindsay Baroka is a classic example of that, right? I do not give advice to people who make five times as much money as I do. They carry on. Um, Amanda Lee, she sends, well, Amanda Lee also has like two releases a month, but she sends when she has a release and she's never going to do anything different. And she shouldn't because the day I start telling her what to do, that's a, that's a weird day. Like I shouldn't be doing that. But generally speaking, because most people release a little less frequently, if you can keep in touch with people in between those releases, you're building kind of a rapport with them. And then you're also not in the position where every single time you email them, you're asking them to open their wallets, which is kind of a eh, position to be in. There are definitely people who only want to know when you have a new release, but the good news is you can either put them on a new release list or segment them in some way. If people say to you, I just want to know this thing and you want to maintain a list of people who only want to hear from you when you have new releases, you do you. Absolutely. I am lazy and I have ADD, so I would screw it up. And I would send to them when I wasn't supposed to. So for those people, I say, follow me on BookBub or follow me on Amazon. Yeah. On my mailing list, I'm trying to kind of build a fan base rather than just have like a transactional situation going on. So that's the number one mistake I see from people is just sending when they have a new release. Particularly if you write two, three, four books a year, that's not often enough to even get your emails into people's inboxes, frankly. Um, so that's a big problem. Um, I think probably the second biggest mistake I see is people who are very high bound about the idea of having any subscribers who aren't organic. We have this whole organic versus non-organic kind of binary that for a very long time, everybody really subscribed to. I even like, I talk about organic versus non-organic subscribers in newsletter ninja. And then I just turn around and like, but it doesn't matter. Here's why you should get non-organic people. So I guess I didn't even believe it at the time. And is that organic? So they've come from the back of a book versus somebody yeah, who's come from a giveaway or? Organic would be somebody who signs up without being um, bribed. Somebody basically who reads your book and goes, oh, this is amazing. And it says, come join my newsletter. And they say, I think I will. And so off they go to read, to join up with your newsletter. Um, my friend Wayne Stinnett, uh, not only does he not offer a reader magnet, but he doesn't even have a clickable link in his books. It says, if you want to be on my newsletter, come to waynestinnett.com and sign up. And uh, they do, which is nuts. Um, but just because it works for one guy um, doesn't mean it will work for you. And it also, no shade to Wayne, who's doing fine, but it also doesn't mean that maybe if he came up with like some kind of incentive, maybe his list would be five times as big. And maybe he'd sell even more books. I don't know. There's no way to know. Um, so I think that if you shut off, it just feels like I called out my friend, which I totally didn't mean to. But it feels like if you shut off that that non-organic, that you know, incentivized kind of wing of people, you are hobbling your reach. And the reason that people do it is because they're really afraid that the people who come onto the list will be the kind of people who only want free things. And those people do exist. There's, I am 100% not denying. There's this kind of new breed of reader who just is never going to pay for a book. And they, and they have no problem telling you that right to your face, in fact. Um, but I don't understand those people and I'm not marketing to those people. So that's fine. If those people wind up on my list, the good news is when somebody comes in, um, 
and you kind of can't talk about reader magnets without talking about onboarding. If somebody comes onto my list and I'm putting them through a welcome sequence, onboarding them, you know, onto the list, the first thing that somebody sees if they got incentivized, if they downloaded a reader magnet to get on the list is basically something along the lines of, Hey, if you just signed up because you wanted the free book, I totally get it. No harm, no foul. Click this big old button and it'll unsubscribe you and won't hear from me again end of story. And they do. And I don't know why they need permission because that's weird. <laughs> there's an unsubscribe link in every, every email, but there's something about saying to them, I see you and I totally get it. And I love free books, but if you don't want to hear my jabber, just click right here and you'll be out of here. And they do. And then they're gone. And the people who stay are like, no, I kind of want to see what you got going on, which is great. That's fantastic. If you then you know, down the line are careful about list hygiene and you're frequently, well, not frequently, but, you know, regularly checking in with people who haven't opened in a long time, seeing if they're still there, removing them if they're not, unsubscribing them gently, always gently. We don't get mad at people for falling out of engagement. They mostly can't help it. Um, then you're keeping a list full of people who are very active. And I can tell you from the data, and this is amazing to people when I show it to them, from the data, of the people who make it through the welcome sequence. So that does not include people who go, yes, I will click that button, thank you. Those people are gone. But of the people who make it through the welcome sequence, when I look at the statistics for them, their open rates, their click rates, just their general engagement, I can't tell the non-organic from the organic subscribers six months down the road. They behave the same, they open at about the same rate, they unsubscribe at about the same rate, they fall out of engagement. People who signed up with absolutely no incentive at all always perform just a tiny bit better. There's definitely no denying that, but they're also like, I don't know, 3% of the list most of the time. Like there's, there's not a ton of truly, truly, I just joined because I wanted to hear more from you. There's not a ton of those people. You kind of got to bribe them. So that's probably the second biggest mistake I think I see people make is just being really afraid to have people on the list that didn't come in an organic way because you can make super fans out of anybody who is predisposed to like your kind of books. Okay, so we've talked about what a mailing list is, like how to set one up, what your reader magnet is. How do you grow your mailing list? That's tough. Um, the best way, the victory condition is to sell a shit ton of books um, and get a bunch of people who love you a whole lot and sign up. Absent that, I am a big fan of those reader magnets that appeal to people who don't know you or that do both, get you a cookie that can do both. Um, I'm a big fan of those because then you can go and you can do either newsletter swaps with people, you know, if you actually have, you know, some connections or you met people at cons or like, in my case, I feel like if I ever actually like launched a pen name seriously and tried to actually make it work, it's probably a lot of people I could ask to like press promote with me and they probably would say yes. So if you know some people reach out, if you don't, you head over to book funnel story origins, whatever that is. Um, do some, you know, some swaps with people, newsletter swaps, cross promotions. You can also do things like Facebook ads. Um, you can technically drive BookBub ads to a reader magnet, but you can't ask for a sign up. BookBub is not letting you build your list off of their list. That's not cool. Um, but you could just drive to a free book for sure. Um, then you just got to absolutely slay the CTA in the back of that that gets them to, to move over. Um, which as an aside, I'm kind of interested in no strings 
cookies anyway. There are a couple of authors. There was someone just on seven, six figure authors. And I've forgotten her name. Um, who's doing a no strings attached cookie like here, just have this and you could join my newsletter if you want. And I'm really interested to see how that works. I'd like to try it, but at any rate, um, you can drive Facebook ads to it. You can, you can uh, put it out in Facebook groups. You can do a bunch of different things. I feel like the cross promotion piece, the newsletter swap, the story origin, the book funnel bundle, I feel like those are the ones that work the best. And the reason, if you think about it, actually, it makes all the sense in the world. The reason I think that those work very well, let's say you and I do a book funnel bundle, right? And um, we both and the three other people in the bundle, we all send it to our newsletter and then everybody goes to the page and downloads some reader magnets. The person who goes to that page and downloads my reader magnet I just totally clicked out so I can't see you anymore. It's very distracting. The person who goes to that book funnel bundle page and downloads my reader magnet, how did they get there? They got your newsletter. So they sign up for newsletters, the newsletter people. They opened your newsletter, which we love. They clicked on something in your newsletter, which is the victory condition. And then they liked what they saw. So they decided to download it and try it out those people are kind of already perfect subscribers. Now at this point, I just have to make sure that they like what I have. They may be perfect subscribers for you, but if you write cowboy romance and I write, I don't know, sci-fi romance, that's maybe not a good fit. And there's a section in the new cookie book that's all about like alignment and how to sort of be narrow in your targeting and make sure that the people you're aiming for are already kind of predisposed to like what you do. But if you see potential subscribers is kind of existing on a spectrum, if you will, from like people who like, you know, if you give away a Kindle fire or an Amazon gift card, you're going to get a bunch of garbage subscribers because everybody likes those things. And then at the other end of the spectrum is people who like your specific books and want more of them. And people exist kind of on that spectrum. The people who you pick up in a newsletter swap are provided you targeted right and you're swapping with the right sort of people they're real close to the 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 good side of that spectrum because they already like what you do if you write billionaire romance and you swap with other people who write billionaire romance you're going to get a bunch of people who like to read that and they open newsletters and they click on the stuff inside them which is all i want from my newsletter people that's my those are my requirements Oh, I love this. You're making me, so I, I am moving into this new genre and I have a temporary reader magnet, but, um, whilst, cause the, the, as soon now I'm finished this book, I I'm going to, uh, write my reader magnet for this new genre. But in the meantime, I, um, into like talking about what's on the spectrum what I have is really really niche so basically I'm moving into sapphic fiction so like queer women uh, but young adults so it's like niche upon niche upon niche um but when I came to the genre uh, and started doing research and digging into the market and um it is a very small market and I know that but I don't really care because I just want to write the stories um I couldn't find many books and so I literally like I have dug and dug and dug and now I have a fuck off great big list which my VA has turned into this stunning PDF like reading list checklist and so I am going to like 
I wanted all of the the like young adult lesbian books and couldn't find them. And so now I have this thing, like and everyone who reads that is already like asking for it. And I'm like, mm, hold on, hold on. But like, and it's like this tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people that want it, but the people that will want it are going to really want it. So um, yeah, until I have written my story, that's what I'm going to use temporarily. But yeah, that kind of gives me hope that that is like hyper niche, hyper like, exactly what they want 100 the conventional wisdom in the internet marketing space like as a whole like out there in the swamp is um that you niche down to blow up that's what they say the riches are in the niches mm. they, they're terrible over there just like oh my god but there is um while the riches are in fact not in the niches because as i said we're selling five dollar ebooks um if you are in something that's super niche the thing that's not like i said super niche like the <laughs> like niche but worse um if you are super niche the thing about that is that your audience may be small but you are scratching an extremely specific itch um and so that means that if you can produce with any degree of regularity chances are good they're going to want all of it um and if you have to you can usually reach out of your niche a little bit you know, so you niche way, way down and you can maybe like go up a level or like go over to an adjacent niche. Um, we talk about that a lot, actually, in the uh, in the um, advanced class that I teach, only because that's specifically what people are doing is trying to figure out, like, what's my position and how can I then find other people that will want to promote with me? And if you're <laughs> I, I had a student last year who just I'm not going to talk about her specific niche because then she'll be recognizable, but just. She started out telling us, I write paranormal romance. And we were like, okay. And she was like, well, but it's this. And we're like, oh, okay. And she's like, but then also this. And we're like, oh, okay. And then she, and she like, <laughs> it was like six things. And so she's down here in the like trenches. And she was like, do you think I can? And I was like, you'd better because yeah. I was like, there's nobody got like five readers and they love you. They love you. But yeah, just come up one, just one level. Yeah. So there. I completely agree. And so uh, what I am, my intention is to be right on the upper edge of YA so that like some of the books will be kind of like adult, but the younger end of adult and some of them will be just like, you know, so I, it's a dangerous game to play, but it's the one I'm going to play. I think so. you can do it. I think you can. <laughs> and if you, like I said, if you just, if you're in, if you're in something that is underserved, you, you have I mean, they're, they're just sort of at your, at your, I was going to say mercy. That's awful, but you just, you have them, you have them hook, line and sinker because they can't get the thing that they want in, in enough numbers to make them happy. There are, there are even a few places on Amazon that are still like that. You just usually the ones that you kind of can't fake. Uh, every once in a while, someone's like, I'm going to start writing Jane Austen fanfic. And then they just get like laughed out of that subgenre. Cause if you don't know it, don't even try. That's dumb. Um, Which is exactly but, why I collated that list and exactly <laughs> why I am binge reading my way through the list. Like, I don't like know yeah. some of those subgenres. The tiny ones are still tiny for a reason. And that's usually because the really, you know, prolific people can't kind of break in there for one reason or another. And it's usually because you have to know your stuff. So um, if you're in something super niche, they can't, they can't get what they want anywhere else. And that's very powerful. Um, so I say, go for it. Knock yourself out. 
And then if you have to, you just, you just go up a little bit. Okay. We'll change the age range a little, or maybe we'll change the spiciness level, or maybe we'll change the, you know, whatever. I don't even actually know how that genre works. You'll know. (laughs) I do. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I can't believe that we are like practically at the end of this. So I'm, I'm just going to ask one last question before I ask the ultimate podcast question. Okay. um, Okay. So Lynn Wham says, have you seen any unusual content or techniques that might inspire us? And I know you mentioned like a couple in there about um, the lady who tested like a a random uh, non sign up, sign up uh, reader magnet. And then obviously, yeah, your other friend who, um, doesn't have a magnet just says sign up and they do but yeah do you have you seen anything else that might be inspiring or unusual or yeah that you think is cool? I have seen a couple of things so actually one of the things why don't I plug my book some more one of the things in the new book though is that I curated I, I asked my list for um for them to uh, just send me links to their reader magnets, like send me what you've got. Cause I'm going to include a bunch in the book. And so in the appendix, there's a link to a page on the website. That's just kind of a curated, I'm calling it the cookie collection because I don't know, I don't know what a group of cookies is called. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different things in there and uh, they're standard stuff that you'd expect. There's prequels, there's, you know, side stories, whatever. Um, but there is some really interesting stuff in there. There's a, there's one that's just like a series of text conversations, which is obviously a, a romance thing. There's a, there's a set of like lab notes from some kind of, it's a speculative fiction. I haven't dug into it quite enough. I just saw the cover, which was really cool. Um, one of the, one of the people in there is my friend, Chris Niles, who writes in Sea Adventures and her cookie, well, it's not her only cookie. She also has a written cookie, but one of her cookies is an audio um, cookie. So she did, uh, maybe it's the same as the written one now that I think about it, but at any rate, she has a, it's a 12,000 words, 18,000 words. Um, and she paid to have it done in audio by the same people who do her series by the same narrators that do her series, but it wasn't expensive. Of course, this is very short. So it was a few hundred bucks. Um, it's fantastic. People really love it. You don't get a lot of free audiobooks, even short ones. They're hard to come by. Um, you don't have to use your, your uh, Audible credit to get it, right? Because it's just right there. Um, she's actually an exception to my rule about exclusivity, um, only because audiobooks are so kind of you know, expensive, that's actually useful for her to price anchor it. So she does have it listed. I think it's $4.99. Um, so that it, so that people are like, Oh, I'm, this is, you know, I'm getting this for free. This is great. And it enables her when they download it, of course, to tag them on the way in, or she's in mail or late. So I guess it's a group, um, to tag them as audio readers. So that's just like a brilliant on a few different levels. It's very like catnippy to the kind of people who really like audiobooks. It comes across as super high value. So they feel very, very valued and very taken care of. And like they've gotten a good gift right out of the gut, right out of the gate. But then also it gives her this advantage that anytime the um, audiobooks are released along, you know, as she goes through her series, she knows that these people should be targeted for that because they listen to audiobooks as well. Um, and it means that her audiobook sales are doing really well. I think that's like super brilliant. That is brilliant. Yeah, it's really smart. And um, the the one example that I do the really deep dive like case study into um, is a side story. And uh, I, we do not have time to go into all of it. But the thing about that that is really brilliant and blows my mind um, 
And she's always like, I didn't do it on purpose. And I'm like, stop saying that. You could just tell everybody you're a genius. Um, is that uh, the cookie in that case, it's a side story. Um, it's an urban fantasy story. And so there's a great deal of world building. Like there is a ton of world building in this. It's based on Norse mythology and there's also zombies and it's just this whole situation. The reader magnet is written from the point of view of somebody who is not in the books proper in the actual series. So he's a complete outsider. The events take place, but they are from this completely different point of view. So when readers pick it up, it's okay that they don't know anything about this world and they don't understand any of this zombie nonsense that's happening. The zombie in this book is a hamster. So that's crazy. Um, He's it's a long story. He's at the night vet and the the story takes place at the night vet, right? So there's this vet tech who, thank God, is a fan of zombie movies. Is it Brian Meeks? Because he has a whole thing about... He doesn't know anything about this world building. And so it's okay that the readers don't because they learn right alongside him as events develop. He's learning just enough to stay alive as he goes through and they're learning it too. There's no need to info dump. There's no need to have anybody do like a, well, as you know, Bob... Um, and then the main characters from the book, the, the book itself just show up at the very end. So when you say, you know, do you want to learn more about these people who crashed in and kind of, you know, were there for the denouement, it's one of those no brainer deals where they're like, yeah, of course I do. But it's like totally okay that they didn't know anything. That point of view switch made all the difference. That is and genius. I think, I think it's just little, apparently it's not genius. Apparently it's a total accident, <laughs> but whatever, accidental genius. I think it's just little shifts in thinking like that that are what's gonna set people apart nobody's gonna like invent a new type of reader magnet like Mm -hmm. i mean it's all everything's been done but just little smart choices like i think i'll try audio or well if i write it this way i don't have to explain a bunch of world stuff or you know whatever i feel like it's the little kind of shifts in perspective and thinking that are going to make people do really original stuff And I just hope that they go through the list in the book and just kind of like pick some things at random and try them because everybody's doing the same like four things. So let's just shake it up a little bit. If for no other reason than our poor readers who are just probably tired of the same three things. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love this. I cannot fucking wait to get my hands on your book tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. Um, Okay. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh, gosh, I don't have an inner rebel. Um, That's actually not true. That's not true at all. Um, I um, moved when I was 21 years old. Um, I packed up, I lived in Maine. I live in Maine again now, but I lived in central Maine, which is the armpit of nowhere. Like there's nothing here. Our biggest, our, I live in our third biggest city and there's like 35,000 people. Um, I packed up all of my stuff and moved down to New York city. And I lived on the lower East side of uh, Manhattan, uh, alphabet city. They called it at the time, um, in the mid nineties, uh, when it was just nothing but I think prostitutes and heroin addicts actually. Um, and I lived there for a year, uh, just a year, which is, it was a very formative year, but it's wild to think that it was just a year. And um, that was against like all advice from everybody that I knew. And they were like, you're never going to make it. And the city will eat you alive. And you're this like dumb white kid from Maine. What do you, and they were right. They were not wrong about any of those things. Um, but it was amazing. 
And I'm really, really glad that I did it. I was very hungry (laughs) and it was sometimes very scary, uh, but it was also really, really exhilarating. I think that when we take the leap and do a thing that we're not sure that we can do, we will more often than not find out that we are more resourceful than we thought we were. Oh, I love that so much. Um, New York is my favorite city in the world. And um, yeah, I just love that because everybody told you not to do it and you did it anyway. And it turned out awesome. So yeah, I absolutely love that rebellion. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, your courses, anything else that you would like to add? Um, just go to newsletterninja.net. That's the best place to start. The website's actually kind of a hot mess right now, but it's got the important links to the mailing list and the Facebook group. So um, head over there. You know, if you go to uh, newsletterninja.net slash 12 tips, there's a hyphen in there, 12 dash tips. Uh, there's a download there, but of course you got to trade an email address for it. Uh, but there's a download that's uh, 12 tips to write emails that people want to open. That's kind of, people seem to like that. Um, and it's got some cool, some cool tips and tricks. Otherwise you can just come join the Facebook group. A lot of smart, smart people over there. And, um, I just started a YouTube channel. Well, I mean, I've had the channel for a while, but I just started actually putting content on it. So, um, I'm going to be doing a little more of that, like content creation, because my emails are starting to get real long, (laughs) really long. I was like, maybe we should just maybe do a video. I love it. Amazing. And of course, go and buy both books because I never, ever, ever reread. I'm sure listeners who have spent any time listening to this podcast will know that. And I have reread your book. So that should tell you how bloody brilliant it is and how listeners should go and uh, read it and buy it. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you, of course, to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Tammy Lebrec, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I, I can't even believe that I'm telling you this, but I am going to be joined by Margot Wood. Margot wrote Fresh the book that I recommended giddily a few weeks ago. And uh, somehow she she saw the episode and so I pitched her and not saw the episode, she saw that I had recommended her book and so I pitched her and yeah, it was... I, I don't like to say I have favourites, but I really fucking enjoyed the conversation that we had. And so I am very excited to bring her on the show. So join me next week for that Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.